Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 103 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question What is the great apostasy? Who is the man of lawlessness? And what has to happen before Jesus returns? And this is part one of what's probably going to be a two parter. Happy Good Friday to you, my friends. It's going to be incredibly strange celebrating the resurrection of Jesus this weekend while most of us are under quarantine, but honestly, I don't think that's going to damper my celebration. The best news in history cannot be uh, lowered by a silly pandemic, nor was it dampened by any of the dozens of pandemics that have happened across the world since the first century. In Christ Alone by Stuart Townen is one of my favorite modern worship uh, Christian songs. I mentioned it before. And on this Good Friday, I glory in the truth of the verse that says, There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. That's good news. Man, that's wonderful news. If you got a minute, you ought to come to the BibleReadingPodcast.com page and check out the version of In Christ Alone that I've got posted there via a YouTube video. It's phenomenal. And if you've never heard that song before, oh my goodness, it's so good. It's so amazing. Um, Thanks be to God the Father and to His Son, Jesus, for that enormous, incomprehensible sacrifice. Today's Bible passages are Leviticus chapter 14, Psalm 17, Proverbs 28, and 2 Thessalonians 2. Our focus passage... And the topic of our discussion for both today and tomorrow is from 2 Thessalonians 2, the very beginning. So let's go read the passage and pay particular attention to the first half when we're talking about the last days and the man of lawlessness. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, We ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily upset or troubled, either by a prophecy or by a message or by a letter supposedly from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called god or object of worship, so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I used to tell you about all this? And you know what currently restrains him so that he will be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of false miracles, signs, and wonders, and with every wicked deception among those who are perishing. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. For this reason God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie, so that all will be condemned. Those who do not believe the truth, but delighted in unrighteousness. But we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by what we said or what we wrote. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us 
and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. So Paul says here at the beginning of Second Thessalonians 2, clearly and really unmistakably, that the return of Jesus or the second coming will not occur until two things happen. Number one, the apostasy, which a lot of Christians call the great apostasy, although the Bible doesn't call it the great apostasy. So number one, the apostasy. And number two, the revealing of this character called the man of lawlessness. So tomorrow, our focus will be on who the man of lawlessness might be. And I don't mean like I'm going to tell you who it is like living on the world right now. I mean, we're going to look at what the Bible says about it. Uh, And today, our focus is going to be on what... in the world, this apostasy thing is all about. So first, I guess we got to talk about the word Paul uses, apostasy, because it's not a particularly common word in English. The word in our language means the abandonment or renunciation of a religious or political belief. It comes from a Greek word that sounds very similar, apostasia, which means to forsake or fall away. And in turn, the word apostasia actually comes from a Greek word that indicates a divorce or a certificate of a divorce. So that connection between apostasy or falling away and divorce is developed powerfully in the Old Testament in multiple places where God often using poetic language describes himself as a bridegroom and his people Israel are his bride and they have been unfaithful and fallen away. And you see you see that dynamic in passages like Jeremiah chapter 3, where it says, If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him to marry another, can he ever return to her? Wouldn't such a land become totally defiled? But you, you've prostituted yourself with many partners. Can you return to me? This is the Lord's declaration. Look to the barren heights and see, where have you not been immoral? You sat waiting for them beside the highways like a nomad in the desert. You have defiled the land with your prostitutions and wickedness. This is why the showers haven't come, why there has been no spring rain. You have the brazen look of a prostitute and refuse to be ashamed. Well, God is not talking to Israel about committing sexual sins, although, you know, there's lots of passages about that. He's talking about to them about being unfaithful and comparing it in the same way as a husband or wife is unfaithful on their spouse. And he that's where we get the this this word apostasy. If you look at the book of Hosea, you also see something very similar. Hosea compares Israel's falling away from God this in the same way as as an unfaithful spouse. In fact, in the book of Hosea, God commands the prophet Hosea, to marry a woman who is a very unfaithful woman. Her name is Gomer, and she ultimately like cheats on Hosea a lot, so that, that God can kind of, in a very visceral and vivid way, can portray the unfaithfulness of Israel in that sort of illustration. Note, though, at the end of Hosea, the promise of God in Hosea 14, 4, uh, and 5, where it, God says, I will heal their apostasy. I will freely love them, for my anger will have turned from him. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily and take root like the cedars of Lebanon. Interesting word there being used. 
Israel had been unfaithful to God over and over again, and God says, I will heal their apostasy. To apostatize, then, is to renounce or fall away from faith in the same sort of way as an unfaithful spouse breaks away from a marriage to be with another person. Notice the relational language employed there. It's all throughout the Old Testament and even the New Testament, too. So when people say, and I know it's very, very trite and overused, but when people say Christianity is not a relationship, uh, is not a religion, but a relationship, that's sort of the thing that they're talking about. It's because God talks about uh, our faith and our following of him in terms of a marriage relationship. So theologically speaking, Paul is pointing out here in this passage, that Jesus will not return for his second coming until there's a significant falling away or apostasy. Unfortunately, Paul gives us almost zero details as to this coming apostasy and what he means by it. The word he uses, too, is used very infrequently in Scripture. I think, however, that we're not at a loss here because there are some passages in the Bible that shed some light, or at least appear to shed some light, on what Paul is talking to. And I am virtually certain, based on the language there, that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, not the Sermon on the Mount, the second one, the Olivet Discourse from Matthew 24, gives us quite a bit of insight into what Paul is referring to. So let's go to Matthew 24, starting with uh, verse 3. Jesus' disciples say to him, Tell us then when these things will happen, and what is the sign of your coming And of the end of the age, Jesus replied to them, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of labor pains." Then they will hand you over to be persecuted, and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Here it is, verse 10. Then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So note here how lawlessness and falling away are connected together so tightly in what Jesus is talking about. And that makes me even more certain that Paul's Thessalonians reference is going back to Jesus' Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Paul also talks about this falling away or rebellion or apostasy in 1 Timothy 4, and I actually think 2 Timothy 3 as well. So 1 Timothy 4 verse uh, 1 says, Now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. So that's what he's saying. Paul is saying, listen, the Holy Spirit is telling us that in later days, Probably the end times is what's meant by that that expression. Some will depart from the faith. Not all. Some. But it will be significant enough that it will be noticeable. 2 Timothy 3 also seems to address it. In verse 1, Paul says, But know this, hard times will come in the last days. 
For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unlovable, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, or the form of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid these people. So that's an interesting description of religious people who have no power, who have no transformation. They live exactly like the rest of the world does. And so I think that's what Paul is talking about here. I believe the Bible is telling us something really, really important. And I don't believe that most people who spend a lot of times teaching on the end times emphasize it enough. Before the return of Jesus happens, there's going to be a noticeable, remarkable, visible falling away by professing Christians. Now, that sort of thing happens all throughout church history. There's been tons of people all the way dating back to the ministry of Jesus uh, and Paul names one of them. His name is Demas, who fell away even in, in at the time when the Bible was being written. And Paul says he fell away because he loved the world. Jesus says that sort of thing's going to happen. In fact, in Mark chapter 4, he describes a bunch of different ways that people will hear the gospel. And in several of those ways, people hear and they seem to be transformed for a time before they fall away. Sometimes they fall away because of persecution by Satan. Sometimes it's because they love worldly things, and sometimes it's just because of busyness and things like that. So people have been falling away from their verbal profession of faith for years. I don't believe you can lose your salvation. We'll talk about that one day. But I definitely think somebody who says they're a Christian, if it becomes uh, kind of hard <laughs> to be a Christian... I definitely think they can switch their allegiance on the spot because it's just a matter of them identifying as a Christian. Uh, it's like saying somebody is your favorite artist or, or favorite uh, uh, musician or whatever. Then they do something stupid that everybody hates. And you're like, hey, you know what? I've got a different favorite artist now. You can do that with your mouth. You can't do that with your life, but you can do that with your mouth. Um, and Jesus talks about that possibility in Mark chapter 4. But will all the church fall away? No, of course not. Uh, many, though, and the reason this is often called the great apostasy, even though the scripture doesn't use that word, is because many who profess only with their mouth will turn from Christ when it becomes less expedient and probably more dangerous to follow him. Now, I come from the Bible Belt. I'm in California now, but I come from good old Birmingham, Alabama, Pinson specifically, and millions of people in the Bible Belt identifies Christ followers, but speaking frankly, they don't know him. They don't follow him with their life and power and transformation. They just claim to be a follower of Jesus. Now, in Alabama, where I come from, you're basically born as either an Auburn fan or an Alabama fan, whether you care about football or not. 90 plus percent of the people in that state will identify as one or the other, but it may not be transformative to you. You may not care about football or watch it or whatever, but you're going to say, hey, I'm an Auburn fan. There's a lot of church people like that. They say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church, you know, sometimes. But that's not what following Jesus is all about. And a lot of those people, maybe millions of those people, at some point when the going gets rough, they're going to be like, oh, hey, I uh, think I'm not a Christian anymore now that I think about it. Um, because it's just a mouth confession. It's not a life transformation. Mouth confession 
not a life transformation. And before Jesus returns, a remarkable and heart-rending sort of mass apostasy apparently will happen. And in the midst of that, a man of lawlessness will be revealed. Perhaps he'll be the one leading the charge in the apostasy. And then at some point after that, the end will come. That's what we see here in today's short Second Thessalonians passage. So what does that sort of mean for our following of God in this day and hour? I'd like for our friend John Piper to answer that question for us in closing. And in preaching on this very passage a few years ago, this is what Piper said. Be sober in prayer, because the great danger facing us is that we fall in love with this world and become spiritually dull, and the day of the return of Jesus come upon us like a thief and we'd be destroyed. Oh, pray, brothers, pray for the coming of the kingdom and for your strength to endure and escape the trap of spiritual apathy. Pray that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. And that's exactly the way, says Piper, I would talk about the coming of the Lord today. It's just around the corner. The end is near indeed. If anyone dallies with sin in the world thinking, I've got lots of time, he plays the fool. The judge is at the door. And the time remaining should be spent in earnest prayer that we not be made drunk and hard by the cares and the pleasures of this world. And amen to that. May we take heed to that counsel And as we've talked about before, be like servants right at the door waiting for the return of their master. Not asleep, not drunk, not living for the world, not carousing, etc., but doing the work of the kingdom and waiting for the king. Leviticus chapter 14, cleansing of skin diseases. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses. This is the law concerning the person afflicted with a skin disease on the day of his cleansing. He is to be brought to the priest who will go outside the camp and examine him. If the skin disease has disappeared from the afflicted person, the priest will order that two live clean birds, cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop be brought for the one who is to be cleansed. Then the priest will order that one of the birds be slaughtered over fresh water in a clay pot. He is to take the live bird together with the cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop and dip them all into the blood of the bird that was slaughtered over the fresh water. He will then sprinkle the blood seven times on the one who is to be cleansed from the skin disease. He is to pronounce him clean and release the live bird over the open countryside. The one who is to be cleansed must wash his clothes, shave off all his hair, and bathe with water. He is clean. Afterward, he may enter the camp, but he must remain outside his tent for seven days. He is to shave off all his hair again on the seventh day. His head, his eyebrows, his beard, and the rest of his hair. He is to wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. He is clean. On the eighth day, he must take two unblemished male lambs, an unblemished year-old ewe lamb, a grain offering of six quarts of fine flour mixed with olive oil and one-third of a quart of olive oil. The priest who performs the cleansing will place the person who is to be cleansed together with these offerings before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The priest is to take one male lamb and present it as a guilt offering along with the one-third quart of olive oil, and he will present them as a presentation offering before the Lord. He is to slaughter the male lamb at the place in the sanctuary area where the sin offering and burnt offering are slaughtered. For, like the sin offering, the guilt offering belongs to the priest. It is especially holy. The priest is to take some of the blood from the guilt offering and put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed on the thumb of his right hand, 
and on the big toe of his right foot. Then the priest will take some of the one-third quart of olive oil and pour it into his left palm. The priest will dip his right finger into the oil in his left palm and sprinkle some of the oil with his finger seven times before the Lord. From the oil remaining in his palm, the priest will put some on the lobe of the right ear, the one to be cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot, on top of the blood of the guilt offering. What is left of the oil in the priest's palm he is to put on the head of the one to be cleansed. In this way, the priest will make atonement for him before the Lord. The priest is to sacrifice the sin offering and make atonement for the one to be cleansed from his uncleanness. Afterward, he will slaughter the burnt offering. The priest is to offer the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. The priest will make atonement for him and he will be clean. But if he is poor and cannot afford these, he is to take one male lamb for a guilt offering to be presented in order to make atonement for him along with two quarts of fine flour mixed with olive oil for a grain offering one-third of a quart of olive oil, and two turtle doves or two young pigeons, whatever he can afford, one to be a sin offering and the other a burnt offering. On the eighth day, he is to bring these things for his cleansing to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. The priest will take the male lamb for the guilt offering and the one-third quart of olive oil and present them as a presentation offering before the Lord. After he slaughters the male lamb for the guilt offering, The priest is to take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the right earlobe of the one to be cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Then the priest will pour some of the oil into his left palm. With his right finger, the priest will sprinkle some of the oil in his left palm seven times before the Lord. The priest will also put some of the oil in his palm on the right earlobe of the one to be cleansed on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot, and on the same place as the blood of the guilt offering. What is left of the oil in the priest's palm, he is to put on the head of the one to be cleansed, to make atonement for him before the Lord. He is then to sacrifice one type of what he can afford, either the turtle doves or young pigeons. One is a sin offering, the other is a burnt offering, sacrificing what he can afford with the grain offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement before the Lord for the one to be cleansed, This is the law for someone who has a skin disease and cannot afford the cost of his cleansing. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, When you enter the land of Canaan that I am giving you as a possession, and I place a mildew contamination in a house in the land you possess, the owner of the house is to come and tell the priest, Something like mildew contamination has appeared in my house. The priest must order them to clean the house before he enters to examine the contamination so that nothing in the house becomes unclean. Afterward, The priest will come to examine the house. He will examine it, and if the contamination in the walls of the house consists of green or red indentations that appear to be beneath the surface of the wall, the priest is to go outside the house to its doorway and quarantine the house for seven days. The priest is to return on the seventh day and examine it. If the contamination has spread on the walls of the house, the priest must order that the stones with the contamination be pulled out and thrown into an unclean place outside the city. He is to have the inside of the house completely scraped and have the plaster that is scraped off dumped in an unclean place outside the city. Then they are to take different stones to replace the former ones and take additional plaster to replaster the house. If the contamination appears, reappears in the house after the stones have been pulled out and after the house has been scraped and replastered, the priest is to come and examine it. If the contamination is spread in the house, it is harmful mildew The house is unclean. It must be torn down with its stones, its beams, and all its plaster, 
and taken outside the city to an unclean place. Whoever enters the house during any of the days the priest quarantines it will be unclean until evening. Whoever lies down in the house is to wash his clothes, and whoever eats in it is to wash his clothes. But when the priest comes and examines it, if the contamination has not spread in the house after it was replastered, he is to pronounce the house clean because the contamination has disappeared. He is to take two birds, cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop to purify the house, and he is to slaughter one of the birds over a clay pot containing fresh water. He will take the cedar wood, the hyssop, the scarlet yarn, and the live bird, dip them in the blood of the slaughtered bird in the fresh water, and sprinkle the house seven times. He will purify the house with the blood of the bird, the fresh water, the live bird, the cedar wood, the hyssop, and the scarlet yarn. Then he is to release the live bird into the open countryside outside the city. In this way, he will make atonement for the house, and it will be clean. This is the law for any skin disease or mildew, for a scaly outbreak, for mildew in clothing or on a house, and for a swelling scab or spot to determine when something is unclean or clean. This is the law regarding skin disease and mildew. Psalm chapter 17 verse 1. Lord, hear a just cause. Pay attention to my cry. Listen to my prayer from lips free of deceit. Let my vindication come from you, for you see what is right. You have tested my heart. You have examined me at night. You've tried me and found nothing evil. I have determined that my mouth will not sin concerning what people do by the words from your lips. I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps are on your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call on you, God, because you will answer me. Listen closely to me. Hear what I say. Display the wonders of your faithful love. Savior of all who seek refuge from those who rebel against your right hand. Protect me as the pupil of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who treat me violently, my deadly enemies who surround me. They are uncaring. Their mouths speak arrogantly. They advance against me. Now they surround me. They are determined to throw me to the ground. They are like a lion eager to tear, like a young lion lurking in ambush. Rise up, Lord. Confront him. Bring him down. With your sword, save me from the wicked. With your hand, Lord, save me from men, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their bellies with what you have in store. Their sons are satisfied, and they leave their surplus to their children. But I will see your face in righteousness. When I awake, I will be satisfied with your presence. Proverbs chapter 28 verse 1. The wicked flee when no one is pursuing them, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. When a land is in rebellion, it has many rulers, but with a discerning and knowledgeable person, it endures. A destitute leader who oppresses the poor is like a driving rain that leaves no food. Those who reject the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law pit themselves against them. The evil do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand everything. Better the poor person who lives with integrity than the rich one who distorts right and wrong. A discerning son keeps the law, but a companion of gluttons humiliates his father. Whoever increases his wealth through excessive interest collects it for the one who is kind to the poor. Anyone who turns his ear away from hearing the law, even his prayer is detestable. The one who leads the upright into an evil way will fall into his own pit, but the blameless will inherit what is good. A rich person is wise in his own eyes, but a poor one 
who has discernment sees through him. When the righteous triumph, there is great rejoicing, but when the wicked come to power, people hide. The one who conceals his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. Happy is the one who is always reverent, but the one who hardens his heart falls into trouble. A wicked ruler over helpless a helpless people is like a roaring lion or a charging bear. A leader who lacks understanding is very oppressive, but one who hates dishonest profit prolongs his life. Someone burdened by blood guilt will be a fugitive in debt until death. Let no one help him. The one who lives with integrity will be helped, but one who distorts right and wrong will suddenly fall. The one who works his land will have plenty of food, but whoever chases fantasies will have his fill of poverty. A faithful person will have many blessings, but one in a hurry to get rich will not go unpunished. It is not good to show partiality, yet even a courageous person may sin for a piece of bread. A greedy one is in a hurry for wealth, but doesn't know that poverty will come to him. One who rebukes a person will later later find more favor than one who flatters with his tongue. The one who robs his father or mother and says, that's no sin, is a companion to a person who destroys. A greedy person stirs up conflict, but whoever trusts in the Lord will prosper. The one who trusts himself is a fool, but one who walks in wisdom will be safe. The one who gives to the poor will not be in need, but one who turns his eyes away will receive many curses. When the wicked come to power, people hide, but when they are destroyed, the righteous flourish. Amen, my friends. That is the word of the Lord. May it be a blessing to you. May it edify you. May we walk in it, live in it, and be built up by it. God, good day to you, and Godspeed.